Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Revelation. And I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 as we read the verses 9 through 20. Let us hear God's holy word. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last." I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So far the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts today. Dear friends, one day on the last day, the entire world will see the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know that we can see him right now? Not physically, of course, for he is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of his Father. But we can see him in his word We can see him in the Old Testament, in the person of the prophets and priests and godly kings. We can see him in the Gospels as he goes about teaching and preaching and healing the sick. But perhaps the clearest and most stunning sight of Christ can be found here in our text, Revelation 1, the verses 9 through 20. Here in these verses, we catch a glimpse of Christ in his state of exaltation in all of his splendor and majesty and glory. And it's to this vision that we turn our attention with God's help today. We look at these verses under the theme, John's vision of the exalted Christ. We'll consider, first of all, the glory he possesses. Secondly, the dread he produces. And thirdly, the reassurance he provides. The vision in our text was recorded by the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, 
where John had been exiled for preaching the gospel of Christ. It was the Lord's Day, as John says, the Christian Sabbath, or the day of rest, and John, we are told, was in the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that John received the Holy Spirit, for he had received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, together with all of the other disciples. It probably means that John was taken up in the Spirit. In other words, he experienced an extraordinary visitation of the Holy Spirit of God. As one commentator puts it, he was in direct spiritual contact with his Savior. He was alone with God. He was wide awake, and every avenue of his soul was wide open to the direct communication coming from God. Well, as John was in the Spirit, we read that he heard a loud voice, like a trumpet, coming from behind him. And whose voice was this? Well, it was the voice of the risen and exalted Christ. And we know that because you'll notice how the speaker identifies himself in verse 11. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, we'll talk more about that later. But suffice it to say that this is Christ identifying himself. And after doing so, our Lord gives John an important commission. He says, what you see, write in a book. And then he was to send this book to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he mentions them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches of Asia mentioned previously in verse 4, except here they're actually named one by one. And the fact that there were seven of these churches may indeed be significant, because seven is a number of fullness. The seven churches of Asia, therefore, represent all the churches of Christ throughout all ages. And that means what our Lord is about to say to these particular churches is relevant not only for these churches back then, but for all churches in every age and place. Now at this point, John turns around to see who it was who was speaking to him. What he saw was nothing short of amazing. The first thing he saw was seven golden lampstands. We read of that in verse 12. Now, John would have been very familiar with such lampstands since similar lampstands stood in the holy place in the temple. According to verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And they're pictured here as lampstands because their task is to shine the light of the gospel to others around them. Only the light they shine comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're made of gold because just as gold is precious to man, so the church is precious to God. She is the bride of Christ. And what is more, gold in the scriptures symbolizes holiness. As the bride of Christ, the church is called to be holy as God himself is holy. Well, the next thing John sees is Christ himself standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. And the fact that Christ stands not above the lampstands or even some distance away from the lampstands, but rather in the midst of the seven lampstands, implies at least several things. It implies, first of all, that he loves his church. He cannot bear to be apart from his church. She is, after all, his bride, and he is the bridegroom. And so he stands not far away from them, but rather in the midst of them. It also implies that he is near to his church. Although with respect to his human nature, 
Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father. He is, as we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, he is with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit at no time absent from us. And that means he sees and he knows all things. He knows our sins and our shortcomings. And he will rebuke us and chastise us when necessary, as he did in the letters to the churches of Asia. But it also means he knows all of our griefs, our sorrows, our burdens, and he cares about us. And he invites us to come to him with all of these things and lay them all at his precious feet. Well, you notice how John describes him here. First, he says he sees Christ as the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was one of our Lord's favorite titles for himself. Many times, Jesus referred to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man. And that title is borrowed, actually, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there Daniel says that he saw in a vision one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now it's clear from this that the phrase Son of Man is a messianic title. And while it certainly expresses his humanity, it also expresses his divinity. For the things that Daniel says here can only be said of a divine being. Now lest there be any doubt about our Lord's divine nature, John also writes in verse 14 that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now very similar words appear in Daniel 7 verse 9. There Daniel describes God, the Ancient of Days, sitting on a throne. And he says his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Now John uses the, words to, the same words to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling us here that he is God. He is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father. Secondly, John sees Christ as the great high priest. John says he saw him clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. John here is describing priestly garments. The priests also wore robes fastened by a band. What is more, as mentioned, he also pictures him in the midst of the lampstands, which were in the temple. And this reminds us of the priests whose task it was to trim the lampstands in the temple, ensuring that they had a fresh supply of oil at all times. Now, what a beautiful picture this is. One commentator puts it like this. He says, just as the priests in the tabernacle tended the lights of the golden lampstand, trimming the wicks, refilling the oil, and relighting any that had gone out, so Christ, the true priest, tends the church tends the lampstands of the church by commending, correcting, exhorting, and warning in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. What is more, just as the priests made intercession for the people, so the Lord Jesus Christ is continually making intercession for us before the throne of his Father. Yes, day and night, every hour of every day, the Lord Jesus is praying for his people. He prays for us even when we don't pray for ourselves. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. Thirdly, in verses 14 to 16, John sees Christ as the righteous judge. Verse 14, he writes, His eyes were like a flame of fire. The language again is borrowed from Daniel, this time from Daniel 10, verse 6. Most likely the meaning is that Christ's eyes are penetrating and all-seeing. 
Somebody said that Christ's eyes are like laser beams penetrating the heart of his church and its people. And so John here is telling us that the light of Christ's omniscient gaze allows nothing to be hidden from him. He is the eternal God, dazzling in holiness and purity, and he sees everything. Then in verse 15, he says his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Fine brass is purified in a furnace and then thoroughly burnished, only then it will shine with its customary luster. And as such, brass represents purity and perfection. It conveys the notion that all of Christ's judgments are true and perfect and good. Now, in ancient times, brass was also used to make weapons, and that suggests an association with judgment and war. And as such, our Lord's brass feet may be telling us that when he comes in judgment, he will crush all of his enemies under his feet. Then in verse 15, John says his voice was as the sound of many waters. And the language here is taken from another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 24. Ezekiel says that when the living creatures that he saw flapped their wings, the noise that they created was like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. It was like the sound of the waves of the ocean crashing against the rocks on the shore. And as such, this phrase tells us that when God speaks, he speaks with authority. And when he does, no one can reply to him. For his words drown out all other voices. Then in verse 16, John says he had in his right hand seven stars. (coughs) Now these stars are his messengers or his servants. They're called the angels of the seven churches in verse 20. Now these are not actual angels. The word angels can also be translated as messengers. And as such, they refer not to actual angels, but rather to the pastors of these seven churches. Each of these pastors are in the right hand of Christ, which represents authority and strength. And the idea seems to be that these messengers, these pastors, are accountable to Christ for the words that they speak, which reminds us what an awesome responsibility our pastors have. Then in verse 16, John writes, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now the sword is a symbol of Christ's word, full of life and power. And it has two edges because, as one writer put it, like any two-edged sword, it never fails to cut. If it doesn't cut with the edge of salvation, it cuts with the edge of condemnation. For the word of redemption to all who believe is at the same time the word of destruction to those who refuse to believe. Finally, John says that his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. In other words, the glory emanating from Christ's face was, as Matthew Henry says, too dazzling for mortal eyes to behold. Well, such is the vision that John had of Christ. Now, how did he respond to this vision? That brings us to our second point. Now, we might have expected John to rejoice upon seeing the Lord Jesus and even to embrace him. After all, he was his disciple. And not only that, but the two of them were close friends. John was known during the earthly ministry of Jesus as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was also the one who was leaning on Jesus' breast as they ate the Last Supper and who asked him to reveal to him who it was who should betray him. 
And so it would seem only natural for John to be excited to see his Lord and Master and friend again, especially since they had not seen each other for so many years. But that's not what happened, is it? For we read in verse 17 that when John saw Jesus, he fell at his feet as dead. Now, there's nothing unusual about such a reaction. In both the Old and New Testaments, there are examples of people who reached, who reacted rather, in great fear upon encountering the holiness of God. Some of them literally came apart at the seams. Take, for example, the prophet Daniel. Like John, Daniel also saw the Lord Jesus Christ, albeit in his pre-incarnate form. In fact, his vision was almost identical to the one that John received in our text. Daniel writes of this in Daniel chapter 10. He says there that he saw a man who was clothed in linen. His waist was girded with gold. His body was like beryl. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like torches of fire. His arms and feet were like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And we read that when Daniel saw him, a great terror fell upon the men who were with him, so that they fled to hide themselves, even though they did not see the vision. And as for Daniel, he says that no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Later in verse 15, he says that after the man spoke to him, he turned his face toward the ground and became speechless and said, As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. And this is only one example. I could cite many more. But the question is, how do we explain this? Why is it that men react this way to the holiness of God? Well, that's precisely why, because God is holy. And man is unholy. And the two of those don't mix. They don't go together. In fact, when unholiness comes into contact with holiness, it shies away. And so as a result, when we sinners come into contact with God, we we tremble, or at least we ought to tremble. We see the same thing in our text. When John sees the exalted, risen Christ in all of his glorious divinity he falls at his feet as dead but notice he falls down at jesus feet though john was overwhelmed by the glorified christ his response was very different from that of an unbeliever remember the garden of gethsemane when the lord's enemies came to arrest him and jesus told them that he was the one that they were looking for he is the great i am they all fell backward in terror But when John encounters the holiness of Christ, he falls down at his feet. Enemies fall away from Christ, but his people fall down before him. Why is that? Because they know that although they deserve to die, he is most merciful and gracious, and therefore he will not cast them out. Besides, he is the only one that they can flee to, for he alone has the words of eternal life. And John understood this. And so he did what any child of God would do. He falls down at the feet of Jesus. My friend, have you ever fallen at the feet of Jesus? 
Do you know what it is to be so overwhelmed by the holiness and the majesty and the grace and the goodness and the love of Christ that you simply fall down as dead before Him? The church today knows very little of this, sadly. We have reduced God to a kind of grandfatherly figure who just loves everybody, no matter what they do. He sits around in the clouds trying to think of nice things to do for people. But that's not the God of the Bible, friends. The God of the Bible is absolutely holy. And any view of God that does not give due expression to this holiness is not the God of the Scriptures. And so John falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. Now what happens next? Well, that brings us to our third point. As John lay at Jesus' feet, too afraid to get up, Jesus did something remarkable. We read in our text that he laid his right hand on him. Now, there's something very significant about that action. When he was on earth, Jesus laid his hands upon many people, healing them of sickness and disability. He could have just spoken a word and healed them, but he, he usually accompanied those words with the touch of his hand. Think, for example, of the leper. He was covered with leprosy from the top of his head to the tip of his toe, and yet Jesus put his hand upon him. Why did he do that? Because with that touch, he conveyed his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, and his identification with his people in their misery. He conveyed that he intended to do them good and not evil. And he does the same thing here in our text, doesn't he? He does the same to any sinner who humbles himself before him. In a manner of speaking, he touches them with his hand. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. Through his word and through his Holy Spirit. As he assures them that he cares for them. He loves them and desires to do them good and not evil all the days of their life. And you notice what Jesus does next. He speaks. And what does he say? Oh, he speaks wonderful words of comfort. He says, first of all, to John, do not be afraid. Now, when we're in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Why not? Because by suffering and dying on the cross, Christ took away all reason for fear. We have peace with God. And now instead of fear, we may have confidence and boldness in Christ. And Jesus assures John of this. And he says to him, do not fear, John. Then he says, I am the first and the last. Now, we've encountered those words or similar words before. In verse 8, God the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And now Jesus takes those same words and applies them to himself. And by doing that, our Lord was claiming complete equality with the Father. He was saying, I am co-equal, I am co-eternal, I am co-essential with God the Father. Yes, I am God incarnate. Then he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus knew this, of course. He knew that he had died because he was at the cross with his mother Mary. He knew that he had risen because he saw the empty tomb. He was also present when our Lord appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, and now he sees him again. So why did Jesus say these things? Well, he said this in order to comfort him, and not only him, but all of his disciples, all of his people. For the fact that Jesus died means that the penalty for their sins has been paid in full. 
And the fact that he lives means that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And this is the reason why John had nothing to fear. Because in Christ, he had peace with God. Following all this, our Lord says that word, Amen. The word Amen means it shall certainly be. And by including that word, Jesus provides a resounding affirmation of what he has just said. It's like he's saying, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and of that you may be absolutely certain. There can be no question about it. And then Jesus says one more thing. He says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, Hades is the Greek name for the grave, for the state of the dead, or the power of death. Death is like a prison where we're kept until the day of resurrection. But Jesus reminds us here that he has the key to this prison. And he got that key by rising from the dead himself. In in rising from the dead, he declared victory over the the death. And now he has the key. And one day, when he comes again, he will unlock that prison of death and he will allow his people to go free and to live before him, body and soul, to an everlasting eternity. Oh, do you see how comforting these words are? These words are a balm for every troubled soul. And this is why our Lord commanded John to write these things in a book so that future generations, including ourselves, might have a share in this blessed comfort. Well, my friend, let me ask you today, do you have a share in that comfort? To have this comfort, we must become like John, who trembled before the resurrected and glorified Christ. We must become acutely aware of our sinfulness before the Lord, not just once, but again and again and again, and more deeper than the, than the other times. And we must humble ourselves before him. We must confess that we are nothing before him and we have nothing and that all we deserve is his wrath and his condemnation and that all we need is to be found in him and we need to look to him and him alone as the only hope and ground of our salvation. Somebody wrote, if the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reconstruct our lives and make us like himself, he must first deconstruct us. He must break us in pieces and then transform us into glorious creatures remade in his image. My friend, do you know this in your own life? Have you experienced this of being thrown to pieces and then put together by the grace and mercy of God? Oh, my friend, if you don't know this, you're not ready to die. For if you do, you'll be cast into hell. And there you'll remain to an everlasting eternity. But if you know something of this, then like he did with John, our Lord places his right hand on your shoulder, so to speak, and he says, my dear child, fear not. Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. One day I will come again and I will open those gates of death and those who believe in me will live and reign with me forever. Will you also be one of them? Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. 
Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Pronk, who's the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, and we hope it may be a rich blessing to you and your family. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages, but you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.